0: They told me I'd have to wait for my separation notice in the mail, which was strange enough. And when I opened it up, it listed uh, one date for attendance, an attendance issue. They had written down something for like like a policy violation once they kept saying I was yelling at management.
1: Ultimately, what's going on here is that you know the tax breaks that the UK governments are often giving away. It attracts the bees to the honeypot, and we've got to galvanize ourselves to make sure that any jobs that are created within these zones don't just come at any cost.
2: Really, if this had gone negative,
3: then there were only tons of horrible options available in order to protect the economy. This lack of, of, of proper incentives to rehabilitate themselves, better themselves while in prison, That's the primary reason that the strike within the prisons and protests outside of the prison are happening
4: the greatest the greatest trick the devil ever came up with was was westchester it's as expensive as new york with and everything is shitty and closes at 9 p.m
5: this is the labor radio podcast weekly on this week's show we have an update from starbucks workers united in michigan James Dennis was joined by Sasha Anisimova to discuss organizing in Ann Arbor and the spurious circumstances in which she was fired by the coffee chain on the Labour Vision podcast. September 30th marks the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada, a day that honors the memory of indigenous children who never returned from the country's Indian residential school system, recognises the system's continued traumatic legacy upon those that survived and upon their communities. On this week's Apple Box Talks from EATC Local 891, survivor Bruce Allen from the Stellatman First Nation joined the show to share some of his memories. While the Queen may be gone and new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss may have crashed the pound already, but Liverpool dock workers are demanding their fair share. Steve Girard from Unite the Union joined Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen on the Labour podcast. Talk about industrial action on the Mersey River and free ports. Remaining on the subject of logistics, Michael Cathcart and Elliot Gilland offered their analysis on the ongoing labour crisis on the American railroads and the political fallout on this week's labour radio on KBU FM in Portland. Next, we go to Alabama where unsafe labor conditions and charges of inhumane treatment in the state's correctional facilities have led prisoners to consider a strike. John Glenn from the Alabama Political Reporter spoke to Jacob Morrison on the Valley Labor Report. Then finally, we'll end today in New York where the art and labor crew debate cosmic architecture, the changing face of the city, Post capitalist restaurants and businesses and urban living in Westchester. I'm Patrick Dixon for the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, and here's this week's show.
6: Welcome to the Labor Vision Podcast, the official podcast of the Michigan State AFL-CIO. I am your host, James Dennis. Tonight, we got a very, very special guest. We always have special guests, but this young lady, how can I say this? She has a job that my union tried to get me to do, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't like it. I like working with people, but I didn't like being an organizer, and that's what she is. She is an organizer. So I want you all to put your hands together and get ready for Miss Sasha Annie scene. Oh, uh, Sasha, I just messed your name up. Here, I'm going to give you a hard crowd. <laughs> and Sasha, hey, welcome to the show. Can you give us your last name since I screwed it up so yeah, bad? Yeah,
0: it's so Sasha and Isimofa. You're you're you are on it. You're, uh, you, you're I, was that
6: close. Tr- I was trying. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, how you doing tonight, Sasha? Oh, I'm doing great. And I meant what I said. You are an organizer for which group now?
0: Uh Starbucks Workers United.
6: All right. You know, let me start with this. What made you decide to be an organizer? That's a hard job. What why why that job?
0: So, uh, it was kind of an accident, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of experience uh, in the past being uh, in the UAW. Uh, I was recent, My last job before Starbucks was actually um, a UAW job. I was a machinist. Uh, but... I I came out here to like start school and started at Starbucks just for like their benefits. I figure I can't work a full-time like union job right now. So I'll just go and work at Starbucks. It seems simple. I'll, I'll get to meet people. I'll get to talk to people. And um, I-, I was majoring in social work, so I was already in that mindset of like uh, activism and making making change. So uh, around this uh, maybe three month mark, four month mark of me working at Starbucks is when I first started to see the news of Starbucks is unionizing in Buffalo. And uh having just come out of a union job myself, I was like, well, that sounds awesome. How can I get involved? So I uh, joined the local chapter of my IWW, which was something I kind of planned to do anyway, just to get involved with like labor organizing in the area and uh, like like fighting for workers rights. But um, it was they managed to connect me over with someone in uh, the Ann Arbor area who is organizing with Starbucks Workers United and it was, just all from there, uh pretty much. So I think I started collecting cards at my store in like February and I managed to drop those cards at with 80% of the store approving an election. Wow. Um, in about eight days. It only took me a few days to get those cards. So wow. I didn't have a tough job. My store was pretty on it.
6: Yeah, but you know what? Being an organizer and talking to people, that is I we, we, we really gotta give you some applause there, right? Because that's a good thing to, to step out on that. But here's the thing, it's a cost to stepping out. Let's talk about what it cost you. Can tell us your story.
0: So uh, it was probably about two weeks ago. I uh, received notice by phone call uh, from a manager I've never spoken to that I was. They, they called it separation, but it's termination. They, they terminated uh, my work with the company. Uh, it was. It was pretty, it was pretty vague. It was pretty interesting. And we all knew immediately why it happened. And that answer is retaliation ultimately.
6: So Uh, wait a minute, what was the grounds for them terminating you? Can I, can I ask you that?
0: Yeah. So, and, uh, I thought that was a little ridiculous. I thought, uh, because these were all dates that were listed where I was trying to conduct union business and they were stonewalling me and telling me that, um, this conversation's over. and All these, all uh, and th- and those type of situations, and I'm a pretty loud person, but I most certainly wasn't yelling. So it's, it's it's it was very slanderous, actually.
6: So they're trying to terminate you for speaking.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it was speaking. That's what for they're workers. They're
6: right? They they are they're saying that it wasn't because it was. Of course, it wasn't because you were organizing the union in there. Thank you, Sasha, for a great interview and the time that you spent with us here at Labor Vision Podcast. We are out of time, unfortunately, but we will have Sasha back to get an update on her situation and what's going on. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Labor Vision Podcast, the official podcast of the Michigan State AFL-CIO. Hey, everybody, join us next time. Our co-host, Charles Daniels, will be back with us, and we got some more new exciting shows coming up for you. Until next time. Take care. Peace.
7: You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 255. In this episode, we're bringing you a story from the UK that has nothing to do with the Queen. It's about the British port strikes, featuring folks from Unite to the Union. Strikes are on hold in Britain right now after the death of Queen Elizabeth, but they will resume next week at full force. And as you heard about last episode, that will include port workers at Felixstowe and also Liverpool, unless a deal is reached in the interim. The port workers, as you know if you've listened to our ongoing series on logistics in the pandemic, worked throughout COVID-19, bringing in necessary goods while risking their own health, and they're watching private port companies now bring in record profits while their own races are paltry in comparison. The Liverpool dock workers voted overwhelmingly to strike after a 7% wage increase offer, with double-digit inflation and looming huge energy costs this winter. Joining me to discuss the port strikes, the current state of the British economy, the Tory strategy of free ports, and the cost of living crisis are Steve Girard from Unite the Union, which represents port workers at Felixstowe in Liverpool, as well as 1.4 million other workers around Britain and Ireland. So let's start off then with the strike vote at Liverpool. Um, tell us what some of the issues are.
1: Well, the, essentially, the issues surrounding the, um, the pay award this year, obviously, because you know, we're in a cost of living crisis here in the UK, um, which I'm sure you're, you're very much aware of, and our members have voted to to take strike action because the company, effectively, when we talk about a negotiation, to, you know, to discuss pay issues and stuff, there's not been a negotiation. They, you know, realistically set a budget of seven percent, and it'd be more of a, um, I suppose. Take it or leave it you know like it all lump it type of thing so you know obviously our members are incensed by that when they see the profits that this company's been making and you know just to touch upon that if we go back and certainly over the past five years the directors and shareholders have been taking um you know their dividends it's tune of 60 million pounds year on year for the past five years that's coupled also then to um their profits which I think on the balance sheet at this moment in time is thirty two million. So you know it's it they can very much well afford and uh, the pay you know the, the the pay increase. But some of the issues that we've also got are historic from uh, a pay agreement that we had last year, and some you know some of the elements of that have not been uh, have not been delivered to our members. The, the company give us all the um, all the hard luck stories about you know that they can't afford it, why they can't afford it. There's now a downturn in trade, but the money that they've been bringing in. Again, if we look at the, the directors' pay, directors being, uh one director, which we assume is the owner at this moment in time, increased his um, his dividends from one point six million in twenty twenty one to four point five million in twenty twenty two. So again, when you know the people on the ground that, that are generating these profits get to see that, and it's got you know people are really really angry. And again, the challenges that our guys face when they get onto the high seat you know, in terms of you know where uh, food prices are, clothing, petrol, all that kind of stuff, it's um, It's not fair, is it, when you see the fat cat's rumour for all the proceeds?
7: So we're seeing this real um, uptick in strike activity. We we talked about the Felixstowe port strike, um, which I talked about on the last episode of the podcast. That was eight days of strike action, which also produced the best union video that I've ever seen, which is the guy like surfing around the port with his Unite flag. But... The RMT strike, um, the postal worker strikes, the BT—I um, know I'm missing a bunch of them—and now you've got a new prime minister who's now being overshadowed by the queen's death. But um, related to talking about the ports, one of Liz Truss's big promises was to beef up free ports. So I wonder if you could tell mm-hmm. us, if you could tell us yeah. a little bit about, yeah, what what are free ports and what does Liz Truss want to do to supercharge them?
1: I suppose what Freeport are designed to do, and obviously I'm the national coordinator for you night on you know on the, the Freeport strategy and what we need to do to uh certainly to organise because what the government what the UK government will tell you the free port is for, it's to attract investment and you know to grow jobs and stuff like that. And we don't dispute that that is the case, but you know, ultimately what's going on here is that you know the tax breaks that the UK government are often giving away um attracts the bees to the honey for want of a better word, and you know, we've got to um, galvanise ourselves to make sure that any jobs that are created within these zones don't just come um, at any cost. It also, um, you know, we've we've seen historically, you know, the uh, the port of Liverpool going back in the nineteen eighties. I think up until two thousand and twelve, you know, at Freeport States back then, and you know, it it didn't create jobs. What it actually done? It displaced jobs from the, you know from other regions, mm-hmm. so people made redundancies. And it was simply just to get into the zone. But what I suppose is going on now with these free ports, you know, first of all, they're not free and they're not contained to ports because they're now on a 47 uh, kilometre, you know, a, a square kilometre spread. So it's a massive, vast area and yeah. um, that's been created. Peel Ports, incidentally, is one of the main um, backers. And I suppose, you know, we would call that the ground zero from the port. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's 47 square kilometres then, north, south, east, and west. But you know, is there is there anything to be shared with our members? We don't believe the are, you know, with Aidan that they've they've got they're going to create all these um, highly skilled jobs. All, all we've seen so far in a majority of the uh, the eight free port zones you know that have been uh, that have been mentioned in the UK. All we've seen is just these vast warehouses that are cropping up now. When an input you know, anything from an import coming into the UK, you know, from wherever it's come from in the world, it'll stay in these uh, in these um, mega sheds, let's call them. And whilst they're there, there's, you know, there's no import duty. Also then coupled to that, you know, the, the import duty, if, the, the, if, if that container arrives, you know, for instance, into Liverpool and it travels to another free port, again, it it avoids the, um, the you know, the tax elements. Right. So you can get to see the attraction now, why, you know, a lot of companies are going to want to you know, be in that zone. But again, what, you know, at what cost of the way who will that be?
7: That was Steve Gerard from Unite the Union and Port Workers in Liverpool.
8: Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart, and I'm Elliot Gilliland. Thank you so much for joining us. The topic we're going to be discussing tonight, um, you know, likely regardless of you know what industry you choose to scrutinize, uh, a major theme that has been running throughout the simmering labor uprising that's spread across the country over the past couple of years uh, is that working people are fed up with employers' refusal to allow them any meaningful control over when and how they work. Um, you know, we've seen such demands from hospital workers, from school teachers and school staff, and even from service workers at places like Amazon, and Starbucks, and other, uh, you know, frontline service workers like that. Um, and last week, the same grievance very nearly brought America's system of rail transportation, and as a result, the entire supply chain to a, gr- a grinding halt. Um, you know, as uh, early, early last Thursday, uh, with the lockout deadline looming, two unions representing uh, 125,000 American rail workers um, reached a tentative agreement with the major rail ca- uh, carriers in this country to avoid an all-out strike. Um, among other victories claimed, the union leaders... Said they succeeded in fighting off rail ca- the rail carriers' efforts to impose higher healthcare costs and other damaging provisions. However, the contract still needs to be approved by the union rank and file membership, uh, many of whom have actually expressed serious displeasure and and concerns with the agreement itself. In, in fact, like one unnamed rail worker, very bluntly told Labor Notes that um, you know quote it's a garbage deal. Everyone hates it so far. It's done nothing for me. I'll vote no. This has been a complete waste of time, so so that's the sentiment where you know the rank and file are at, but that you know that's just one unnamed worker. It's it's hard to say whether or not that that sentiment is widespread or if that's maybe in concentrated pockets throughout the industry. So obviously, like this agreement may not mark the end of this uh, this struggle for this contract negotiation and for the fate of our rail transportation network. Um, so yeah, this this strike threat came from the engineers and conductors who drive the nation's freight trains, uh, a workforce that was deemed essential after the start of the pandemic and has been proven many times over to be very essential to our society. Uh, Unlike many other strike threats, the railroad workers' demands were not primarily actually about wages, but were rather focused on sick time and penalties for missing work. Um, These workers are frequently penalized for taking days off when they're sick or tending to a family emergency.
2: I think that touches on obviously a a point that we we you know, bring up many many times on, on not our show but kind of all of Labor Radio and that's again strikes aren't always focused on wages though obviously that was a part of it and we'll dive into kind of the protections that they that the workers won for medical PTO but in in addition to that also scheduling in yes. particular was a very big issue which we'll touch on and you know w- the workers on the railroads had been forced to be on call kind of at a moment's notice for basically years at this point yeah. um, which is not something that many people have to deal with in industries that you know We're also fighting kind of a lot of these fights so in addition to that it's not only when you are on time off you're basically on call as well um and with all the supply chain issues they were being called in frequently
8: according to like a lot of reports right so yeah there's still more details to come out about what exactly the the Republicans were trying to do but essentially they were siding fully with the management and completely against the workers which is you know no surprise but they wanted to basically avert the strike by forcing these workers to go back without any concessions. Um, and, you know, as you may have actually likely noticed in your daily life, in the lead-up to last Thursday's negotiation deadline, uh, the f- major freight carriers began halting shipments and snarling s- uh, supply chain the supply chain in an effort to pressure Congress to impose a labor contract that was friendly to the management. So, you know, they were using their their weapon at, the, at, the, at their disposal, which was throwing off our entire society, the entire economy, in order to basically threaten the American people. And the yeah, but right before midterms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which...
2: The timing for them was quite strong. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, kind of politics aside, I mean, this is a pretty big win for Biden, just the fact that they have kind of gone through this without arbitration or kind of Congress's involvement. Um, really, if this had gone negatively, there were only tons of horrible options available, you yeah. um, in order to protect the economy. Right. Kind of at that point, you're talking like kind of macro level as opposed to like individual kind of workers. Right. right. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of that, the actual White House, I think internally they're viewing this as like a gigantic win.
3: Come on, you poor workers, good news to
6: you. I'll tell how they could overthink. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and
7: Jacob Morrison.
9: Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. You know, Selma workers, mine workers, Lowndes County workers, they're not the only Alabamians that are going on strike or considering using the strike weapon. John Glenn, wrote a report about this potential prison strike in Alabama for the Alabama political reporter. And he joins us now to talk about that. John, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it.
3: Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me on.
9: Absolutely. So before we get into the potential prison strike, can you expand on some of the conditions that these workers, these prisoners are running up against right now in Alabama prisons?
3: Of course, um, well, it's the same conditions that incarcerated individuals and, and folks aware of the situation within Alabama's correctional system. I uh, have been speaking about for years now, and that being the increasing violence between incarcerated individuals, the inhumane and unconstitutional treatment by correctional staff, the rampant narcotic use that the ADOC is presently incapable of preventing, the deterioration of physical prison structures, meaning the the overcrowding, the, the actual buildings that these folks are housed in, um, and again, the death on a scale a, that the majority of individuals in the state seem really not to fully grasp. Um, I mean, it's important to note that these individuals inside the prison are striking due to these general conditions on top of the working conditions that they face. Um, and, and something that I've, I've heard for, uh, in conversations with folks is that this, this lack of, of, of proper incentives to rehabilitate themselves and better themselves while in prison, that's the primary reason that the strike within the prisons and protests outside of the prison are happening.
9: And this isn't the first time that incarcerated workers in Alabama prisons have gone on strike. What have been the ramifications for, for workers, for prisoners, for, for, for incarcerated workers that have gone on strike
3: in the past? Um, based on, you know, the previous uh, reactions from the ADOC, from correctional staff, um, they have faced everything from alleged denying of meals or delaying of meals to being locked into segregated cells which are otherwise that's solitary confinement uh, in layman term uh, for years this this was the case of robert Earl, who's one of the better known prison organizers um, who helped that uh, who helped begin that worker strike in 2016 it began on may day of 2016. Uh, it was the largest in u.s history um, and during that particular strike as well as those that have happened after that you have Instances of threats of excessive violence from correctional staff or actual instances of excessive violence from correctional staff, uh, which is commonplace enough in Alabama's correctional system. Um, I mean, most recent example from January of 2021, um, as reported in the Montgomery Advertiser, there was a hunger strike that happened among uh, incarcerated individuals at Kilby. Uh, and at least one of those individuals alleges that he was beaten as a result of that um, participation in the hunger strike at Kilby by a correctional guard. Um, and in conversations with folks that I've had, it, it seems that the retaliation for this current organizing effort is is happening as we speak. Um, it, one of the organizers was speaking to me and said that her husband, who is an incarcerated individual inside of uh, Uh, a state prison, uh, was locked into solitary confinement uh, somewhat recently in an act of apparent retaliation for her efforts outside organizing this protest. So it it affects people inside um, and outside.
9: John Glenn, reporter at the Alabama Political Reporter, we appreciate your time on this. Uh, This is a very interesting, important thing that folks in Alabama are going through. Thanks.
10: There's something just so... like. It's like the you know like, um, ho- hostile. The opposite of hostile architecture <laughs> yeah. is cosmic architecture. What? Yeah, to is me, that a real term? No, I made it up. Oh, I'm doing theories.
4: <laughs> Speak on it, brother.
10: <laughs> I think that cosmic architecture is it. It grounds you. Like it's not just about like the. Stupid business because I'm sure mm-hmm. it probably sucks to work for San Loco. The lady there, yeah, she was like kind of new and she she seemed fine and she was in a good mood and because it is a nice vibe there. All of the fucking locals are there and they're all weirdos. They look like me, and or they're being like, respectful, and they're, or they're wearing like you know the Rick and Morty hype beast outfits. Like yes, they, yeah. everybody looks. Yeah. Great. But he looks like a New Yorker, and I'm just like, I'm home. This is my home.
4: (laughs) Where I feel it too. Whenever I go to East Village, and I don't recognize anything. Um, I, you know, you gotta like stop and remind yourself, like, okay, well, the East Village that I saw was a totally watered down version.
7: Absolutely. The person
4: who had moved there ten years before me, and like, there's no like. Those places are always going to eventually close,
10: you know. Well, that's because they don't have a militant um, <laughs> fucking movement. <laughs> but even like neighborhood, the-
4: I do feel that even even after the revolution, um, like places will change and neighborhoods will shift, and like not businesses, but like. Uh, mm. Vegan cafe co ops will come and go because they will inevitably have their own drama that makes them completely fall apart.
10: Well, not if they're truly <laughs> expropriated into in proletariat. Yeah, yeah it, you can't be like, yeah, you can't actually
4: anticipate what a post capitalist world would look like. Well, that's a why I like restaurant.
10: the. I like the analogy of like the neighborhood is a prison, and it's like how fun is the prison. <laughs> Um, because it is a prison and it is like a, um, it's like, true. my
4: friend's dad hasn't gone above 14th <laughs> in decades, probably.
10: And like, and, and, and for now it's like, it's like kind of this like agreed upon like set of norms of the people who live in this particular area. Like that's what a neighborhood is. Um, but a like a, a truly like proletarianized neighborhood or world. Like I, I I can't even really imagine what type of like liberatory culture that would produce.
4: Yeah. I mean, luckily we don't have to because everybody gets to make that decision together.
10: <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Yeah. We don't
4: know it's what it'll look me. like and we don't necessarily need a rock solid plan because it's never been tried before. Um, right. But I, I think like, uh, uh yeah, maybe just to like end on a slightly like optimistic note. Uh it's mm. e- you know, if a place has been around, if a if like a restaurant specifically if it stays around too long, then it becomes a theme park, you know. Yes. That's the way it yep. ends up surviving Cats Deli, which sucks. Yep.
10: Honestly. You're so right. And um and then it's like come and live in our prison
4: come live in it's our prison here. like come to the food tour
10: <laughs> we're going to make the museum of markets which is what the term the <laughs> oh. theoretical term that we've developed on art and labor over the year is the museum uh. of markets <laughs> the New Essex market, the one that Google owns into the Chelsea market.
4: And when they were gonna make I wonder if that ever actually happened. They were gonna make an Austin themed um food truck park in downtown Brooklyn. And I lit it was like, This is the thing that will make me leave New York. <laughs> is this <laughs> And then instead, it just took my entire life falling apart instead, uh, and, and reconstituting itself in
10: Westchester. Westchester.
4: <laughs> that's Which the, the future. The greatest, the greatest trick the devil ever came up with was Westchester. was Westchester. It's as expensive as New York, with and everything is shitty and closes at nine p.m.
10: Like, well, that's I, what that's what's happening to New York. <laughs> They're turning New York yeah. into fucking Westchester. Like that's what's happening. It, because oh we're, because we aren't. Yeah. Because we, we need a car because the trains don't work. Because the trains suck. Because we aren't unified as no. a public. Because we aren't unified yeah. as a militant neighborhood that is like, no, our way of life is far superior we want we want it for everywhere we should be liberating Numenor Westchester. will will stand for a million I don't know anyway. We need to liberate Westchester. That's like the name of the game. It would
4: be please come to Westchester and liberate it. Save me from save me from my government.
10: We're gonna we're gonna fucking my pe- all anyway. right.
6: let's have fun. Lots of fun let's have fun
5: Fun. We've reached the end of this edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our weekly roundup of highlights from the 150 or so shows that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. You can find full versions of all the shows you've heard today in the show notes and many other shows at labourradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag LabourRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Chris Garlock, Hamza Nishtar, and myself. Produced by Chris Garlock and Harold Phillips is our master of social media. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Radio Net. Find out more on our website at, again, that's LabourRadioNetwork.org. For the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next time.